Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interview podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm joined by my good friend, as always, from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Sebastian Kaplan. Hi, Seb. Hey, Glenn. How's it going today? We're going great, man. I'm really looking forward to talking about this episode with Mary Martin Velasquez. Uh, but in advance of that, if you just want to remind people about our social media and how they can contact us. Sure thing. So on Twitter, uh, you can find us at Change Talking. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And on Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. Uh, for any direct uh, communication with Glenn or I, questions, suggestions uh, for future episodes, it is uh, podcast at glennhines.com. Brilliant. And please leave reviews. It would be great to hear from you. But let's get on with talking about today's podcast. Like I mentioned, we talked with a friend of ours, Mary Martin Velasquez, who's based in Austin, Texas. Uh, and she is founded in her work around tra- the trans theoretical model, which most people will associate with the stages of change model. And May has been a long time motivational interviewing trainer as well. But what were, what were your takeaways from today then, Seb? Well, I'm going into this admittedly as a relative novice in the world of the trans theoretical model and really familiar at I would say a surface level with the stages of change, probably safe to say most people that have any kind of uh, in-depth training in MI has at least heard of the stages of change. And so one of the things, I guess my main takeaway was uh, not just learning a bit more about those stages, but really for the first time in any sort of depth, learning about the processes of change, uh, different than the four processes of MI, But, uh, you know, Mary offered us a really in-depth, but a really sort of accessible and clear summary of the processes of change within the trans theoretical model and the importance of uh, kind of working through each of those uh, in helping people with change uh, across settings, across contexts, across whatever a particular change target a person might be trying to work through. Mm. So I, I would say that's my number one, um, my number one takeaway from yeah, after, after this conversation. Yeah, because there was something about this. She, she talked to us about the significance of how important it is to understand the what that is going on and uh, for someone as they change their mind and the importance of recognizing that part of the journey that people make on and change is, change, first of all, changing their mind. And she talked about the importance of what she described, the experiential or the cognitive processes, the five, the first five of 10 processes. And that what the research shows is, is that if somebody doesn't complete that part of the journey, that while they may make behavior change, they're more likely to revert back to an older behavior. Whereas if they've completed those first five processes before completing the behavioral processes, then change is much more long lasting. So that was really interesting and, and quite insightful to, and well, encouraging for us practitioners to think about the people we're working with and how quickly we're, we are inviting them to make behavior change without actually really have taken the time to think and, and talk it through. Yeah, no, for sure. And also, you know, we talked a little bit about the history and how the trans theoretical model and motivational interviewing arrived in the scene about the same time. And 
Um, and, and it's, it's really easy to see how people confused motivational interviewing and the trans theoretical model as, as sort of being one in the same or, or one kind of directly informing the other and not at all that they're opposed to each other, but, uh, they, they did sort of, uh, they, they, they developed in separate places and separate labs and, um, but really found each other in, in a lot of ways. And, and, and really I imagine helped inform and enrich uh, each other. So that was another interesting takeaway. Yeah, I think it was mentioned during the episode that Bill Miller described them as kissing cousins. Mm. So that there is a relationship, but uh, maybe not just as close as we, many of us had previously thought. And just taking into account that, just how important to acknowledge just how much Mary has been involved in the creation and development of landmark uh, insights and models that have influenced so many people's practices and, and helping. You know, we've mentioned the trans theoretic model. And she was in the development of that in the sense that she was part of the research. She was a research participant and then became a part of the actual program itself. And then she was also a lead in the project match research uh, that really was a springboard for motivational interviewing and in the guise of motivational enhancement therapy. So uh, we were delighted to have her on the show and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Well, hello, Mary. Welcome to the podcast. As we always do when we start the podcast, we just asked our guests to tell us a bit about themselves and in particular their journey into motivation interviewing. Okay. It's good to, good to be with you, Glenn. It's good Thanks to see you again. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, my story is a little bit, I guess everybody's story is a little bit unique. Um, mine started uh, when I was young. I was a young, this is sort of a story um, that will tell you a little bit about how, about how I got into working with the stages of change, trans theoretical model, and then into motivational interviewing from there. So I was, a, um, I sometimes tell this story, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I was a smoker. I was 18, 17, 18 years old, uh, got married very young, had children very young, and uh, had not finished college um, and was home one day, just uh, had a sore throat. So my mother was over visiting, helping take care of the kids. And I was kind of at that stage, you know, where I sort of felt a little bit better, but if I still stayed in my room, mom would watch the kids. So I was just kind of rooting around for something to read. And I picked up this throwaway newspaper. It was called the green sheet. Uh, I was in Houston, Texas at the time. And the green sheet had this big advertisement that said, if you're a smoker and you don't want to quit, call this number. So I thought, oh, that's intriguing. And I was kind of bored that day. So I called and um, it was about this research study. And they were just looking at uh, the whole process of behavior change and how people tended to um, uh, what, what was going on in their in their in their minds and in their life as they uh, changed or didn't change their smoking. So I rolled to this study uh, and they sent me questionnaires and that went on for about three years. And I remember my husband at the time saying, why are you filling out these questionnaires? We moved to California, we moved back to Texas and they followed me, these researchers and, you know, in the mail. And I said, well, because they'll give me $8 every time I fill one out. And he said, I'll give you $8 if you don't take the time to fill those out. But anyway, the study intrigued me at the end of the study. Um, the, the, person who was in charge of the study sent the study findings and it was this thing about this circle uh, about these stages of things that people went through and they had actually 
found this out by these studies that they had done. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. I was part of that. Well, that turned out to be, that was Carlo Di Clemente. And it was part of his doctoral dissertation at the time. And um, he was working with Jim Prochaska. Uh, and so they, this model was kind of intriguing to me. So I continued, I went back to school. I was actually going to a, a nearby community college and I was studying accounting. I was going to be a, um, uh, I was a business major. So I did two years of business and, um, then I took a psychology course just because I had to take an elective and I fell absolutely in love with it. So I thought I'm not going to be an accountant. I'm going to move in this other direction. So I took the class, enjoyed it very, very much. And, um, but during the course, the professor who was a young graduate student said, um, you need to write papers in this area. And I went to him and said, can I write papers on something else other than what you've required? And he said, yeah, sure. What are you interested in? So I said, well, I've got my kids are in this gifted, talented program. Let me write about that. So I wrote about that. And then we had to write another paper. And he said, if you want to choose another topic, go ahead. So I thought, well, you know, I got that stages of change thing. Maybe I'll write about that. So I wrote a paper for my class on the stages of change that required me to go to the library at the university downtown and, and get the, this book that they just written. Um, so I got very intrigued by that. Then I couldn't figure out, I said, then I thought, well, I've got to really stick with this. And I know I have to go to graduate school. I had no idea what I should even look into. So I wrote a letter to this De Clemente guy and uh, said, you know, could you give me some advice about, you know, would it be social work or psychology? You know what? I didn't even know. Mm. And, um, so I thought he would have an assistant call me or write a letter or something, but he called me and I was just like, oh my gosh, here's this guy. Um, and he was lovely and told me all these things about different school programs, what I might do. And that was the end of that. Later when I was about to apply to graduate school, so I, was, I was applying to a master's degree in clinical psychology. And I asked um, the same professor, you know, now what do I need to do? And he said, well, you need some volunteer experience. And if you, uh, if you'd like, I, my best friend's girlfriend works with that guy that you wrote a paper about. And so um, I said, okay, well, let me give them a call. So I called, and this is my recollection. This is, this is a story from my perspective. Um, Carlo may not remember any of this, but um, so I called, and the project director then said, um, I don't think we need any volunteers. And then she called me back and said, Dr. DiClemente wants to know if you were ever in one of his studies. So that was before the IRB regulations. And I said, yeah, I was. And said, Do you, did you live on the east side of town? And I said, yeah. And she said, he said to come on in. So that's how I started my work with that. Oh. I started, yeah, started as a volunteer, uh, volunteered for a while on his project and then became a research assistant. Uh, in the meantime, I went back to school, got my master's in clinical psychology, uh, became a, um, you know, more of a research associate. And then I was doing private practice halftime and working in Carlos lab half time after I got my master's and, um, and my mother got sick and I was really struggling with, you know, should I, you know, how am I going to juggle both of these jobs? And so she was living with us, taking care of her. And, um, I was, I remember being in the hospital with her one day and, um, Carlo called, and um, I got a message to call him back. And he said, oh, Mary, I just got this big grant that it looks like we're going to get. And what's the probability of you just not doing private practice and coming in and being the project coordinator for this? And it was Project Match, which was big alcohol treatment matching study. Um, so 
I um, became the project coordinator for Project Match um, and then worked really closely with, as you know, there were three treatments, a cognitive behavioral treatment, 12-step facilitation, and then this thing called motivational enhancement therapy. And two of those um, conditions were 12 sessions, and this third one was only four sessions. And for a while, they even sort of thought about it, I thought, as, as kind of a comparison or control group. And so that's how I got introduced to motivational interviewing. I was having to do some of the supervision of the therapists that were doing that. So I got trained along with them. Uh, and then and I won't talk about the dates because it's a long time ago. Um, the second training of motivational interviewing trainers, I was trained there and that was in Santa Fe. So that was my journey into MI and I've been doing MI training uh, and a lot of research. Every one of our, I run a, um, what's called the health behavior research and training Institute at the university of Texas at Austin. And uh, our research lab now has been for over 20, 25 years using motivational interviewing and the transtheoretical model components in all of the books we write and all of the treatments we write and all of the research that we do. So that's my long story of my journey. Mm, wow. Yeah. It, and I think you may be the first person to describe a background where you were an actual participant on in, in a field that you ended up going into. I, I don't know that we've heard anyone else describe that. Uh, and I also appreciate hearing anyone with a somewhat circuitous route into their uh profession. I, I can certainly resonate with that. And, uh, you know, as you were describing each of these touch points from the, you know, that first call that you made, something sparked your curiosity about asking for smokers who weren't interested in changing or, um, you know, Carlos paper later, or, you know, whatever it might be. What, what, if you could speak to that, like what, what would you say was sparking that curiosity even before, you know, you were a researcher before you were doing formal education with this. What was it about this whole business of change that interested you? I think it was really the, the questionnaires they were sending me, even though there was no intervention, the questions were things like, when you last smoked, what were you thinking? And what, what was going on in your mind? What situations were you in? Who were you with? And, and then did you make a quit attempt? If you made a quit attempt, what was happening then? What, what, what is it that, um, that, that encouraged you to, to stop? And then if you relapsed, what did it, what did it feel like? What was happening at the time? Um, did you have people around you? Were you, you know, what, what kind of strategies were you using to change? And so I realized, and this is what they were realizing at the time too, Prochaska and Di Clemente, that people change um, in, there, there's some pretty predictable things that happen when people are making behavior change. And I recognized that it didn't only apply to smoking, it applied to all the changes that I was sort of making my life or thinking about making uh, that these similar things were going on in my, in my mind sometimes and with my behaviors. So that really intrigued me. I thought, and, and then the whole stages of change that people go through um, different stages as they make changes um, that was intriguing, but it was really more the processes underlying those stages that got my attention just to kind of round out my story. So when I worked with Carl for a number of years, um, Project Match went on for a long time, and then we, uh, he left and went to the um, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and we continued, my colleague Kirk von Sternberg and I continued the research lab and made some different moves um, from where we were at the university. But during the time I was with Carlo, he was 
lovely. And um, I was able to go back and finish my PhD, get my PhD uh, in um, at school public health. So it was really a combination of psychology and behavioral sciences um, then that allowed us to continue after Carlo had moved. Um, I had my doctorate and was able to continue um, writing independent research grants. So it was always that, um, Sebastian, it was always that that idea about change and, and people and behavior change, that curiosity that always kind of spurred both my clinical work and my um, my research. And just to echo what, what Seb was saying about your own journey there, what strikes me is, is <clears throat> you mentioned two of probably the most significant uh Theor- theories or, or um, what informs practice for an awful lot of practitioners, particularly in, in the alcohol and drug field, which is the trans model, the stages of change, and that you were there informing the development of that, but also so quite significant, you were one of the leads in, the, you were the lead in the project match, and people will know about that too, and, and the development and then the birth of motivation and, and on this global scale that we have now. And what struck me as well is when, when, when you were answering the last question, it was almost like the fact that they were being curious about the what and the how behind your decisions that and, and and that form of question reminded me of how Bill describes he first came to formulate his ideas around motivation when he was in Norway the students were asking why did you do that then when you did that so it's really interesting that the, the two uh, developed or your interest in that and Bill's development of MI came from a similar type of interest you mentioned that the trans model that stages of change and people will certainly an awful lot of people will rec- recognize the notion of the stages of sa- of stages of change which is which is the circle but you've also mentioned the the processes of change and i think yeah. fewer of us are familiar with that piece and i wonder could you talk a wee bit about that mary and and what they are and and how that informs practitioners uh, uh, and support people change Sure. Yeah. Um, go back a little bit to Prochaska and Di Clemente, um, sort of their, their very early work around that that time and, and prior to that, um, is that they were really curious about what is happening when a person changes behavior. So they set out to talk with a lot of people um, who were changing behavior. So they started with smokers, I think, um, and uh, did studies like the one that I described that I was in. Um, and we're sort of trying to identify what was happening. So what was happening cognitively and what was happening sort of behaviorally. So they, um, and then they talked to smokers and then they talked, started talking with people and studying people with all different kinds of behavior change, exercise, you know, diet, other substances, um, any type of, of change. And they also looked at people and whether they were changing in ways that were, um, similar or different and did it depend whether you were changing doing self-change or changing with a therapist or in a group or some kind of uh, self-help program and they realized that after studying thousands and thousands of people that people change in a very in very predictable ways and it Mm -hmm. almost doesn't matter whether you are um, changing on your own uh, or almost doesn't even matter the, the behavior changing. They studied condom use. They studied all kinds of things and realized that there were these, these 10 common, what they termed the processes of change. And they identified five of them that were what they called experiential processes. 
uh, and five they called behavioral processes. So it was really these processes that they um, they started out with before they even developed the stages of change model. So they realized, that, and I'll tell you in a minute if, if you'd like about each of the processes and sort of how they work with, for, for behavior change. But what they discovered is that is that the people who were were changing um, were doing it in very you know again very predictable predictable ways um and they, so it wasn't like a willy-nilly thing that just people changed you know didn't used all these processes they used them in very predictable manner and that's when they came up with the stages so the stages were really secondary the trans model is is based really on the processes of change um so it, they we consider them the engines of change and that's what enables people to move from one stage of change to the next um, so the first group these experiential processes are really the person's thoughts and feelings, experiences regarding their behavior. Um, and these types of internal processes are really most relevant in the stages that we call pre-contemplation and contemplation. Pre-contemplation is when a person is not planning to change. They may not know about a problem behavior, um, or they may just be resistant to change. Uh, contemplation is when they start thinking about changing and maybe uh, just considering the pros and the cons or the good things and the not so good things about change. So consciousness raising is the first one. It's kind of building an awareness of the problem. Uh, sometimes it's just kind of gaining knowledge about oneself, um, the nature of the behavior and consequences. So oftentimes people in the early stages have not really fully appreciated or been aware of the negative effects sometimes of their behavior um, and learning more about the positive and the negative and thinking through that uh, is that process of consciousness raising. So in motivational interviewing, the way um, we often do that is not by giving information because when we give information about behaviors, a lot of times people already know, you know, for example, smokers don't need to see pictures of black lungs. Um, they've been told many, many times, but it's really um, eliciting from them their own ideas about um, the behavior. And then if there's, you know, oftentimes we'll say, tell me what you know in motivational interviewing, tell me what you know, you know what do you know about diabetes and what do you know about um you know, the effect of, of a sugar, for example, or, or what do you know about the effect of stress uh, or not exercising any blood pressure? So in motivational interviewing, we often call that there's a, um, a model that's called illicit, provide illicit, or sometimes it's a question sandwich or something. There's different names for it, but it's really asking the person, what do you know about this? Um, tell me a little bit more about what you know, and then asking, would it be okay if I gave you some information? I might have some more things, you know, to, to tell you about this. Um, would that be okay? So always asking permission first and then providing the information and then going back and asking, you know, what, what's your understanding about that? Or what do you make of that? So it's really helping the person gain information, not giving them facts they already have, but but figuring out where, where the gaps might be and respectfully asking them if it's okay if you provide some of that information. Um, another motivational interviewing strategy that I know, Glenn, you're very familiar with and, and Sebastian is, um, you know, the strategy of saying, gee, I have an, another client, you know, like that old people 
may remember Columbo a long, long time ago. I don't know if you do. It was a detective and he would scratch his head and say, I don't know about this, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, tell, tell me about this. So it's kind of a Columbo approach and say, you know, I don't know if this information will be helpful to you or whether you already know this or not, but I have another client that found this to be really useful. Would it be okay if I told you what was helpful for that client? So it's really providing information, raising consciousness, using that that uh, those strategies to increase the consciousness raising that first um, experiential or cognitive process of change. The next one, um, they've called a different couple of different things. It's typically known as emotional arousal. Again, so these first five are experiential processes or cognitive processes. Um, it's emotional arousal, or sometimes it's called dramatic relief. And that's a significant sort of emotional experience that's related to a, a problem behavior. So sometimes people will shift their perspective, gain insight when something um motivates them either you know something emotional that's either internal or external that will motivate them to to consider change um again i remember one example that stuck with me was um carlo talking about i think it was a relative of his who had a he was holding a cigarette down by his side and his little toddler came along and burned her face on the cigarette and that was such an emotional moment for that person. They realized that now's the time to quit smoking. Uh, for a lot of the, I do a lot of work with um, hospitals and, and primary care settings. And a lot of times that emotional arousal um, process of change happens when a patient learns that, you know, maybe they've had a heart attack or maybe they've gotten in a car accident when they're drinking or maybe they, you know, have learned for the first time that they're diabetic or they have high blood pressure. It's often a very emotional experience and it's a window of opportunity. And so that, that again, that, that emotional arousal piece, it's really sort of how do we, especially, you know, as a clinician, how do we capture that? How do we learn about that in our clients and how can we facilitate that? We don't want to facilitate, you know, emotional, negative, negative, emotional emotions, but we do want to, um, really learn about the person and what is it that has uh, impacted them the most. In motivational interviewing, we, we do things like we ask people um, maybe to write a gratitude letter to people in their lives. You know, it's something that evokes emotion to them or we'll ask them about an experience they've had that's been particularly frightening uh, or, or scary or what, what has promoted them to change. So that, that, that's that emotional arousal um, one. The third one is self-reevaluation. And that's just kind of seeing myself differently. So I might recognize how my behavior conflicts with my personal values, my life goals, and desired change. So, for example, you know, I want to see myself as someone who's healthy, exercises, keeps my weight under control. Um, so, but I see... A discrepancy, you know, every time I think about, well, I'm just driving home from from the, from campus and I could stop here and maybe just get some fast food and get on with my day. Right. So that's a real discrepancy. Right. I see myself as a healthy person who's going to go exercise or go to the gym instead of stopping and getting a, a burger or something. So it's, it's really that self reevaluation is. Um, we, we have we have people look at that process of change again, trying to link the motivational interviewing and these processes, I mean, it's, they're perfect, perfect match. Um, so in MI, we ask people questions like, um, if you look forward, you know, to five years from now, 
what might um, what might your life be like if you don't make this change? So, for example, someone who's watching their diet or, or concerned about you know their their health in terms of their exercise behaviors. Well, if I don't stop, you know getting hamburgers once or twice a week, what might things be like in five years from now? Maybe my cholesterol will be high. Maybe my weight will be not where I want it to be. We also, um, other strategies to facilitate this self-reevaluation could be, you know, what, tell me what was happening uh, before this behavior came up. Tell me what life was like for you before. Um, So it's really sort of getting the person to do that self-reevaluation and using motivational interviewing, it's, it's a way to um, to really be very respectful. And what we're doing in motivational interviewing is eliciting what we call change talk. And I know you've talked a lot about this on your um, on your podcasts. And just for anyone listening who's not familiar with it, change talk is really uh, one of one of the underlying um, our foundational uh, concepts in motivational interviewing. Where what we're trying to do is get the person to come up with their own ideas about change. And that's what we reflect back to them and reinforce. There are two more experiential and then there's five more behavioral. Do you want me to go on or do you want me to stop here? And well, maybe, maybe finish up the experiential and we can kind of pause and reflect on that. Okay. Great. Okay. Um, So the next one, the fourth one is environmental reevaluation. So that's just kind of seeing my surroundings differently. So I'm recognizing the effects that my behavior has had on my environment. So oftentimes, you know, for again, using substance use as an example, clients are often motivated when they realize that their substance use has affected not only themselves, but the people around them. So that's, you know, oftentimes, you know, it may be our children, it may be our, 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 our partner, it may be people at work, maybe neighbors. Um, and, and it, you know, might, might have disrupted my social life. Um, and sometimes, so it, again, in motivational interviewing, we might do what we call a values card sort. We'll ask people to pick some, there's their, their, most valued or most important values, I guess, from a, from a set of cards or a sheet of paper, you know, so for some people, they might say, well, what I value most is my family or what I value most is my work or what I value most is money or what I value most is, is God uh, or spirituality. And so kind of looking at their values and then as a clinician, oftentimes saying, well, tell me how the current behavior, whether it could, whatever it is, uh, but tell me how the current behavior might be conflicting with that value that's so important to you. So again, it's really these cognitive processes, experiential, and I'm using those terms interchangeably, uh, experiential and cognitive, they are most often now considered experiential, but, um, uh, but both terms again are used. Um, so, so what's happening then is, is really, again, just, um, just impacting the the emotional things that are going on or the the things that are happening um the experiences that that person's having i guess is what i'm i'm wanting to say um the 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 next one of the experiential processes is what we call social liberation and that's really just recognizing norms in society that might be changing or realizing that there are environmental or social policies um, that may have changed. One example is, again, as a former smoker, um, a long time ago, restaurants started having first non-smoking areas and then banning smoking. Um, Other things, I live in Austin, Texas now, and there are um, these white bicycles that 
and they don't sort of even, I don't know how, if they do these in other places, but if a white bicycle appears, someone has spray painted a bicycle white, they oftentimes, someone will put them there at night and nobody really knows where they come from, but it's where a bicycle rider has been, um, killed by probably by a drunk driver, or sometimes there's a cross that's put in the road with flowers on it. Um, so those are examples of social liberation. Social liberation is one is a process that can actually span both experiential and uh, the stages of change, early stages and later stages. So sometimes it's put in the behavioral category too, just depending on how it impacts the person. Okay. That, that was uh, very, very helpful and interesting to listen to Mary. And, and I'm just so just trying to step back from it and making sure for certainly that, that I'm following and understanding how the stages fit with the processes and actually how MI seems really intertwined in all that. So what you've described for us with these experiential processes of change are the, the types of, of, I guess, cognitive shifts or experiences that people have early on in their overall change journey. So if we take those first two stages of change, pre-contemplation and contemplation, that what you and your, your colleagues have found is that when people are going through those changes, regardless of what they're changing and regardless of whether they're changing in an in a individualized way or in a group setting, that they're making these shifts in these places that you've just outlined for us, whether it's an awareness of consciousness that was different than before or an emotional experience of some kind or some kind of linking of their value system with the change. And that, that's kind of what you've just spelled out for us. Is that my, my following? Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. And, and I guess we didn't, I didn't, um, for some people may not be familiar with the stages of change. Um, so, so these processes, this is what they, um, Prochaska and DiClemente identified first are these processes. And you're exactly right. So these early processes are, um, they found were, um, linked to the early stages of change. So I explained pre-contemplation where a person's not really thinking about changing contemplation where the person then is really sort of doing a, um, an evaluation of, you know, what might be the benefits of change? What might be the costs? How might I change? What might get me? So I would ask someone, you know, what might get you to the next stage of change? What would it take? Some people say I would need, you know, if I, had more research studies, I might move forward. So the third stage of change is, um, is preparation. So it's pre-contemplation, contemplation, and then preparation. And that's, for example, said if you were to decide you wanted to um, go to the gym uh, and start a new exercise routine, you know, what, what would you need to do? You'd probably need to maybe buy some new shoes or maybe get a partner or get a gym membership. So there's things that we have to do to prepare for any behavior change. If it's diet, we need to decide, am I going to change my, uh, you know, is it, is it sugar or, you know, cut down on sweet sugary drinks or am I going to, you know, is it fat and fiber vegetables? You know, what, what does all that look like? Um, so that's the preparation stage. What would I need to do? And then we move into what we call action. And in the action stage, the person has actually made the change. Um, and in, in the, it's the early part of making the change and um, doing all the behaviors that are consistent with that. So in action, we move into what we call behavioral processes. And I'm going to explain those next. 
And then a final stage often um, described in the transtheoretical model is maintenance. And that's when the person has maintained that change over a period of time. So, so you're exactly right. Those, these early experiential processes are tied to pre-contemplation, contemplation. Preparation sort of bridges those and then moves, moves into action and maintenance stages. So it sounds like for, for us practitioners, one of the things to be aware of is that before we support someone change their behavior, we're initially first helping them change their mind. So it's recognizing them when we're offering an intervention, that's what we're doing. We're working with their thinking rather than their behavior. And I guess this is really important then for us uh, to recognize that for, for an awful lot of us practitioners, we, we base our successes on clients changing their actual behavior. And that, that means that we, we might have to wait a long time to experience some form of success. But what this, these processes offer us is an insight to what else is going on underneath. And if we can pay attention to that, first of all, we can recognize that that's, that's where they need our help with their thinking. So there's things we can do. The things that you've been asking, that you've been offering is that the, the value short cards or the illicit provide illicit and just those eliciting people and inviting people to think about what's going on and what are, under what circumstances would they change and then what, how they would like to go about that before then moving into, okay, how are you going to do that? Exactly. Right. Okay. Absolutely. So, yeah, and so there's so many ways as clinicians, you know, that we can do that. What I do oftentimes is I teach a whole semester course in motivational interviewing to master's and doctoral level students. And one of the things that is um, useful is when we just talk to them about tell your clients about the stages of change it's described so we'll, we'll have like a you know a circle we do a lot of group therapy um, work and we'll have a circle and we'll describe to people you know here's your uh, if you're not thinking about changing kind of a person jumping over hurdles in this little depiction that we have if here you're thinking about changing here you're preparing to change and here you, you know, you've already changed. Where would you put yourself? And it doesn't matter, right? The behavior doesn't matter. And they can, because you may be in a very different stage of change for one behavior than you are for another. So we explain to the client, here are the stages. Think about your, you know, your cocaine use or think about your, your, your smoking or think about any behavior you want to change and just see if you can identify what stage you're in. They can readily do that. And we give them little vignettes and say, you know, Joe blew up the tires or pumped up the tires on his bike today, getting ready to ride his bike. What stage of change is Joe in? So clients can easily learn that. When I used to work with adolescents, I would just draw a straight line and say, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action. Where are you today about not skipping school? Where are you today about your smoking? Adolescents love it because they can say, well, I'm, you know, for cutting school, I'm sort of in action. Um, and, but I'm in pre-contemplation for changing my, my smoking, right? So it's easy for people to identify the stages. Well, once you know what stage your client's in for a specific behavior, we always want to have a target behavior that we're talking about. Then you can, as a clinician, you can facilitate whatever processes are important. So if people are in pre-contemplation, um, then we're going to do more consciousness raising. And so we're going to use exercises or strategies that will promote consciousness raising. And that's when we talked earlier about, you know, our book, our manual, we, you know, have there's 
35 sessions in there. And it's kind of like, as a clinician, you could say, well, here in this session, you know, my, my people are in more in preparation. So what would we need to do more behavioral processes? So it's kind of, and, and, and you don't have to have a book or manual to do it. It's not rocket science, but if a good clinician can certainly just identify uh, the person's stage and then help facilitate those experiential and behavioral processes. And before I go to the behavioral processes, I want to comment on some research that's been done. Um, there was a, a, a very interesting study by uh, a woman named Angie Stotts, Dr. Stotts, who looked at pregnant smokers. So these are women who were smoking um, and, and joined a study and they intended to stay uh, quit. They said they intended to stay quit. Um, after, at the end of the study, but they were followed, Dr. Stotts and, and um, others, Dr. DiClemente, followed these women um, post-pregnancy, and they had tested the, these experiential, so they're, they're questionnaires for all of these different behaviors. Um, and so they, 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 they tested the experiential processes just to see where they were, which processes had they used. Um, and it turned out that the women who um, were successful at quitting had gone through these experiential processes. The women who didn't stay quit, even though they intended to, had kind of skipped the experiential processes and they didn't do the cognitive piece. What they did was um, they kind of jumped into the behavioral processes because they were quitting for the baby mm. and they, they kind of didn't do the cognitive work. So those, so, so, so the implication there is, is that, people really need to work through these experiential processes in order for them to be successful changers. So if I haven't done, you know, sort of the work I need to do to think about why am I making this change? How would my life be different? Um, how, you know, what, what is, what is my um, environmental, you know, do the environmental reevaluation? How will this affect people around me? If I haven't done that early work, I'm not going to be a very successful changer if I just jump into it. And I know Bill Miller has written a book on quantum change, um, which is interesting. And it's very rare, but he talks about conversion experiences. So that's a whole different thing. I think it's very rare for someone to have a conversion experience where they just say, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm never going to do this behavior again. It's really doing that early work to have for successful change. And so again, if I'm capturing that correctly, that, that there's, this idea in, in, in referencing the research with um, women who are pregnant and who smoke that, that those who quit during pregnancy and stay quit, uh, if that's a phrase, stay quit after the pregnancy versus those that quit during the pregnancy, but then resume smoking after the, the delivery of their baby, that there's a difference in the experiential processes and how, maybe how much of a shift they had made. Cause I, I guess when I, when I hear that, I, I think of maybe that's, it's someone who's had that shift during the pregnancy, but then hasn't generalized it, you know, so that the, you know, that, 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 that emotional piece, right. That that's, it's very resonant with this living being inside of them, but once it's outside of them, maybe there's less of a resonance around the importance or the emotional valence of mm. the importance of staying quit, I guess. And, and so I don't know, I, I'm just hearing, you know, hearing I, some I, more thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you're a psychologist. I mean, it's sort of the whole locus of control thing, maybe even, yeah. you know, so, yeah. so for women, even though they intended to say quit, uh, 
maybe many of them were saying, I'm going to quit for the baby, but they hadn't done their own sort of cognitive work about why that quit would be important. So once the baby's born, then they would go back to doing, you know, the, the earlier behavior. I think uh, the name of that paper is a case of mistaken identity. It's a, it's a, it's a really cool paper. Hmm. And does, is there, given, the, given the significance of that, because of what you're suggesting, is that um, we may now begin to understand why some people are relapsing in their behaviour change, that it's because they haven't been supported to these first five elements. Is there, any, is there any, any research, Mary, that uh, replicates that with other behaviours other than smoking and pregnancy? Yeah, that's the one that that comes to mind. Um, But I know there are certainly other papers or a number of papers. In fact, we're just doing, in fact, this morning, just got a paper accepted by Journal of Clinical and Consulting Psychology around these processes of change. Um, This particular one is around... preventing substance exposed pregnancy. So it's, it shows the processes and the connections between the processes and the stages and outcomes, successful Mm. outcomes. Mm. So this has been replicated, you know, in a number, and I know um, probably Carlo and Jim uh, have a number of other studies as well. I think it's fascinating and it it, it makes sense. You know, clinicians are just kind of like, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, if we haven't done this early work, you know, then we probably are at, at more risk for relapse. But how do you that the key is how do you how do you facilitate these processes as a clinician? And and a, and a thoughtful clinician can kind of recognize the process that the person needs to be bolstered in mm. um, and, and figure out ways and strategies to do that. Um, it's also really cool in, in groups when you're doing you know, group therapy or group treatment. You can talk about the processes used and you can use exercises or strategies that will bolster the process use. Then again, it sounds there's an opportunity. I know that when I was enter- first introduced to motivational viewing, uh, there was a lot of work, a lot of um, a lot of the training involved, particularly the stages of change, the, the, the circle, the cycle of change. But it sounds like there's a real opportunity for us to reinvestigate or reconnect with this material and and particularly this processes aspect of the model, because I guess it's not just motivational viewing that can and that can be superimposed into these stages or processes. It's any form of intervention that any practitioner specialising in any intervention can go. Okay, this if if this person needs to go through this, how can I use my techniques to help them with that? But from an MI perspective, we're looking at that uh, the evocation of thought and and being with someone to uh, explore and tell us why they want to change rather than us telling them why it's a good idea. Um, So yeah, it's, it's uh, very thought provoking. It's, it's so with that mind and everybody else is going to, okay. So now that, now that we've got you thinking, how do we get you to do it? So I I guess that that's the next five processes and the, the behavioral aspect. Yeah. So the behavioral, and again, you're, you're right on track, um, Glenn, because the behavioral processes are more, um, you know, now it's shifting into someone preparing to take action and taking action. So we would still use motivational interviewing, but motivational interviewing is really powerful with the experiential processes. As we shift into the more behavioral processes, we continue to use motivational interviewing, the spirit of MI and eliciting, you know, change talk and reinforcing it. But with the behavioral processes, we may also, you know, we're going to incorporate maybe some CBT 
uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and some other approaches. So you're exactly right. And, and as a clinician, you kind of think, you know, what, what's going to be most effective here. So someone who's shifted now into uh, preparation or action stage of change, we don't need to raise their consciousness. We don't need to do the environmental reevaluation piece. What they want is some direction. How am I going to make this change? What's going to be helpful? So for those clients, um, the first process, one of the processes of change, they don't go in any particular order, but the experiential does become before the behavioral. Um, so one is stimulus control, and that's just managing cues and triggers. So for someone, again, um, well, I guess you could use you could use sort of any any behavior, but if, if again, if you're talking about substances, um, a person would avoid going to bars, or they might avoid happy hours, or you know, we've just been through this worldwide pandemic where drinking increased um, pretty significantly, and um, you know, so it would be avoiding you know the times of day where you might you know, be more tempted to drink or so it's really controlling the stimulus and typically it's controlling, you know, it's controlling your environment. So, you know, I might toss a pack of cigarettes away or take the ice cream out of my refrigerator. So it's, it's really stimulus control is very straightforward. The next one is counter conditioning. So that's really changing. Um, it's substituting healthy reactions or healthy behaviors for unhealthy ones. So I might go out for a jog instead of having a cigarette. When I was a smoker, and, and by the way, I did quit smoking just as a result of being in that study and I didn't have any intervention. It was just, it really, these questions that they were asking on these questionnaires um, really got me thinking and I think it moved me through those experiential processes. So what I did when I was trying to quit smoking was I just ate those little buttermint things. I never had buttermints before or since, but it was just substituting something for an unhealthy behavior. Um, so it might be, again, going out for a run rather than stopping at a fast food place, or it could be changing my reaction to the cues. So I might learn how to relax in a stressful situation, or I might use self-management skills. So I might, um, we might help a client learn how to be more assertive rather than reacting to a situation with emotional, um, you know, an emotional cue. So, so teaching some other strategies. So that's counter conditioning. Um, the next one is reinforcement management, and that's simply finding ways to reward myself. So for example, the, the, the one that, um, the example I use is when I was a doctoral student, I was doing my comprehensive exams and it was like this week long thing of, you know, just all day long grinding through these, these comprehensive exams. Well, at the end of the day, I would tell myself I could go to, I don't know if you have them there in Ireland, Glenn, but it was called Marble Slab and it's an ice cream place where they have fruits and things, chocolates and things, and they pound them into the ice cream. And it was this wonderful reward. And it was something that I don't normally give myself, but at the end of that day, I could look forward to what is that reward? Um, so sometimes reward is something like that. If I go you know, for a whole week without eating unhealthy food, I might have pasta at the end of the that week or something. Or it could be simply, um, you know, sometimes it, it's uh, rewards are just, they're, they're, they're self-rewarding. You know, if, if I feel good about the way, I mean, I have a little checklist. My personally, I have a little checklist that I do for myself every day. Did I do this thing for work or did I do this thing for, you know, organizing the house or bills or, you know, did I make sure I did some self-care stuff? And I, I do that little checklist on every morning. Um, and it's really reinforcing the days that I have really 
sort of watch my diet and exercise, that's really reinforcing. So sometimes reinforcement management is external, like the ice cream. Sometimes it's internal um, and it, it it's very rewarding just to ha- have be successful in that. Mm. Um, the next one is self-liberation, and that's really kind of taking responsibility or making commitments. So here, again, I'm in the in the later stages of change. So I'm believing in my ability to make a change, and I'm acting on that belief. So it might be if I tell you, Glenn, you know, I'm going to not um, – I'm not going to eat pasta this week. Right. So it's saying, you know, making a commitment out loud Mm. or someone might say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to change from drinking, you know, two, six packs of beer, a beer down to two beers. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a commitment. Um, So that's self-liberation. And once we make that commitment and we're successful, we feel good about that. Right. So I can think of a number of circumstances in my life where I made a behavior change. Like when I quit smoking, that was hard. That was really hard. And when um, I needed to make another big change in my life, it was like making a move from one state to another. I thought, boy, if I can quit smoking and it was that hard, I can make this change too. Right. So, so that becomes a reinforcer in itself. So that's the, um, the self-liberation. And then the, the final one is helping relationships. And that's pretty straightforward one, you know, so again, if Sebastian, we're going to go and start an exercise program, he might say, I can't say it to you because you're all the way in Ireland, but he could say to a friend, Hey, do you want to go play basketball every day or, you know, twice a week? Or, you know, I have a group of, of friends that I, I walk with every evening and they walk their dogs and we all, we, we sort of have that commitment and those are helping relationships when we're making changes. Sometimes it's, it's the therapist or the clinician that is, is the one in the helping relationship. So, so it's really doing the process of, of change or it's just kind of doing the right things at the right time or helping a client do the right things at the right time. So, so the processes span the stages and that's where we want to focus depending on the, the stage of change. Mary, I feel like you, you were listening to conversations I had over the last couple of weeks with, as I had been contemplating returning to the gym or playing basketball. So it's funny that you just randomly <laughs> picked those things. Um, but, uh, so, so this is great. So we have, we've had a, 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 you know, a summary here of this, both the stages of change and then these 10 processes of change. And, and I guess I'm thinking about, and, and it's, it's just wonderful. The descriptions that you have where they're so, um, accessible, right. And you can either just living and breathing and you can imagine, I, you know, I, I know I am, I imagine others can just picture themselves with clients regardless, again, like you said, of, of what the change that you're talking about, but you know, what, how a conversation might go about each of these particular processes. I guess what I'm wondering about is, you know, anytime there's this list and this sequence that someone might present. And, and I, I, I heard Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick in MI context caution us about how linear these experiences and, and processes go and, and to caution us to be aware that human beings tend not to follow along in nice neat patterns. And, and so I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how flexible the processes are. And as a clinician who might be orienting towards these, say these, um, the, the, the both experiential and behavioral processes, like how flexible does one need to be as a clinician do people 
or do clients uh, start showing some of the behavioral processes, but maybe aren't quite tapped into the experiential ones? And, and does a clinician need to like back up and make sure they're hitting all those experiential ones as opposed to embracing the behavioral ones. But what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Wow. Lots of thoughts about that. Cause those are all really good, great questions. Um, so I think that um, sometimes people have sort of, I'm going to, I'm going to start with the stages of change to answer your question. A lot of times people have thought about those stages as being very linear, right? And once a person has gone through contemplation and now they're in preparation, then they're going to move forward. Well, I think that the, um, transvertical model, uh, folks would, would, um, say that they're, they're certainly not linear, right? You could be in preparation one day and then, you know, for you've gone out now and, and gotten your gym membership renewed, but, you know, tomorrow you're super busy with work and now you're kind of back in contemplation. So, so the stages are not necessarily linear. It, what, what's also important is that we're in different stages for different behavior, right? So if you were to ask me what stage I'm in right now for exercising, I would say pretty much I'm in action. I go to Pilates, I go to the gym twice a week. I'm totally in action. But if you were to ask me what stage I'm in for pasta is my weakness, right? For not eating, not eating pasta, I would say, you know, you know, I'm probably somewhere in, in pre-contemplation or contemplation, maybe contemplation. So we're in different stages. Um, and so I think one of the things that Bill has always said, um, and, and I, is that, you know, ambivalence is, and, and we've had conversations about this, um, we're, we, we can be ambivalent, we can be moving forward and, and changing behavior, but sometimes that ambivalence is still there, right? So we don't want to dwell on it necessarily if a person for a specific behavior for your basketball playing, you know, I don't want to go back and keep exploring your ambivalence around it because you've made a decision to do that. But I have to keep in mind as a clinician that there still can be some ambivalence there, right? So a skilled clinician, a skilled MI clinician is going to be aware of that. The other thing that Bill has said, and we have um, done a study that really that, that, that bore this out, is that you know, when someone is has moved forward and they're in a place where they're changing their behavior, you don't want to kind of keep going back and trying to do a lot of MI to, to, to motivate them. They're already motivated. And again, uh, we did a study where it was group therapy and we uh, compared um, people who were uh, given more motivational interviewing strategies or more kind of uh, it was an educational group. And what we found, it was, I think it was pretty fascinating. And, and again, it, it, it really bore out what, what Bill has said so often um, is that when the people who were ready to change, so these were in groups, right? You don't, it's hard to compile a group too, where everybody's in the same stage of change, right? Some agencies do that and they, they're able to do that, but most real world stuff, people are going to be in different stages. So we formed these groups and they got different interventions. But what we learned is the people who were more ready to change when they started the group, um, if we did a lot of MI still trying to boost their motivation, we kind of solved them and they didn't do as well. They did better in more kind of cognitive behavioral kind of interventions than, than people who were people who are not really ready to change uh, did really well with the motivational interviewing. So, so I think that really bears out, you know, kind of what you're saying is it, it's not exactly a linear process and we have to be, it's, in, it, it's individual. You know, we have to be really aware of individuals. The processes of change, I think tend to be more, certainly wouldn't call them linear, but 
uh, like some of the studies that I described earlier, people should really do in order to be successful. It appears that people should do that early process work before they do all the behavioral pieces. Mm. So it's, it's know this stuff and bring some flexibility to your approach. Absolutely. So that, that even, even recognizing that you're, you've just met someone who has told you they've stopped smoking, it may be useful just to, just to reflect with them for a while to see what have they done, what has led them to that place and to check, to check if they've completed those, uh, early stages so that if they haven't, then there's an opportunity for maybe to really help them reflect on it to enhance the possibility that this time will be a complete stop. And um, so flexibility in our dance and in our work with people. What I'd like to do now, now Mary, if it's okay, we, uh, before we, we went, uh, we were recording this, uh, I put a tweet out to the world and uh, just letting people know that you were coming and what we were going to talk about. And we had a couple of questions in from Dr. Charlotte Hilton, whose uh, Twitter handle is Dr. C.E. Hilton. So thank you, Charlotte, for, for your questions. So if it's okay, w w one of the questions she asks is, I'd be curious to know Mary's thoughts on the emphasis of the stages of change component of the model, both in research and practice, to the extent that the stages of change are often referred to as an independent model, and why might it be? Why might it be that the decisional balance and self-efficacy components of the TTM transtheoretical model are overlooked? And in particular, she's interested in this because MI practitioners and researchers uh, know how important self-efficacy and the decisional balance is in the process of change. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Thank you to Dr. Hilton. Is that what yeah, you said? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. The, the great questions, uh, and I absolutely agree. So the, the stages of change have become, and, and again, as I described, the processes were what they developed first, uh, Prochaska and Di Clemente, but the stages became, they're very intuitively comfortable, and I think people really just bought into the stages and emphasized it because it helped us realize, you know, we used to think about, for example, substance use, just like motivational interviewing, the state, the transtheoretical model started there. And we used to think, back in the days in the field, they would think a person either has to be motivated to change or they're not going to change. They've got to hit rock bottom before we can do anything like all that, all that business. So the stages I think were very comfortable when they were introduced in the field because we, people realized that change was a process and that, um, and so clinicians really kind of uh, liked the whole idea of the stages um, when motivational interviewing came along, you know, Bill, Bill calls uh, this the transtheoretical model and um, motivational interviewing kissing cousins because it was such a natural fit. And I was so excited when I was trained in motivational interviewing early in Project Match because, you know, here we're looking, what do we do? We knew what to do with the people in, in action, preparation and action. We did more behavioral process strategies. What did we do with those people in pre-contemplation, contemplation? Here is motivational interviewing. This is wonderful marriage. And so people became a little bit um, overly enthusiastic about the stages. And that's, that's why we, they became, I think, so popular. Yet these, these other pieces like the processes and like um, the question uh, is that this, there's decisional balance and self-efficacy. And those were also parts of the trans model in addition to the processes that they were looking at. So behavioral 
uh, decisional balance, for example, is um, you know Janice and Nan's early work on you know looking at the pros and cons of a, of a behavior in in the transvertical model. Uh, that was looked at as again there were questionnaires, and we would sort of look at what's the person's score on a you know the, the good things about the behavior, and then the not so good things. With motivational interviewing, that really built on that decisional balance because um, Bill and Steve started talking about you know when we when we work with clients, you know let's ask them specifically what are the good things, what are the not so good things. The work that's been done since then on decisional balance, I think, is fascinating because in motivation, one of the things I love about motivational interviewing, as you guys know, is that it's really followed the research. There, there are a lot of people who are who are um, doing motivational interviewing. Bill and Steve have done a beautiful job of listening to the research, paying attention to the research. Terry Moyers has done fascinating work on change talk, identifying change talk. Um, and then uh, Paul Amarine, I'm not sure I'm saying his name correctly, um, psycholinguist who, who has done wonderful work with along with that team. So the decisional balance response to that question, the decisional balance is a very critical piece, I think, of helping a person move forward. What we know now about decisional balance is that you always, I'm doing this with my hands, you always, um, you want to ask the person what sort of the status quo, what are some of the good things about your behavior um, and elicit from them because they wouldn't be doing it if there weren't some benefits and some good things for them. And then asking them what are some of the not so good things. But what we've learned over the years and in large part to thanks to Terry and Bill's work is that um we call the the not so good things and the and the good things or the pros and the cons um, sustained talk and change talk. So on the one hand, all the reasons that I am eating pasta because it helps me relax. I love it at the end of the day. I can stop at a restaurant, have some pasta. All the good things about it. That's what you call sustained talk, sustaining the behavior. And the not so good things is change talk, right? So what we want to do when we're using our motivational interviewing skills and reflecting, we're going to reflect some of the sustained talk, let the person know that we've heard them, but we're going to try to soften the side, the sustained talk and, and sort of build the change talk. So that's what we're going to reflect more often. And that's what we're going to reflect um, second uh, more recently right so we'll start with the the sustained talk and then reflect the change talk and then emphasizing the change talk in the summary so in response to that um question again the decisional balance uh that, that was looked at or has been looked at and studied very closely in the transcritical model again fits absolutely beautiful beautifully with with what we're doing in motivational interviewing uh i think the, the question also asked about self-efficacy so self-efficacy, um, it's, of course, you know, many of you know, it's a, um, a construct that was first developed by Albert Bandura as part of social cognitive um, theory. Uh, but self-efficacy was really sort of your belief that you could make the change, not in, in your your belief in your ability to actually make the change. Well, in the trans model, Prochaska and Clemente, when they were conceptualizing it, they, they were using the term self-efficacy or do use the term self-efficacy, but that's not just confidence, right? It's, it's temptation and confidence. So again, it's the two sides of, of a behavior. So what we've learned and what, what they learned and what has every one of our research studies, and now we have 20 or 30 that bear out the fact that my temptation in a certain situation 
is not the same as my confidence, right? That I can change that behavior. So, um, and they're, they're correlated, I don't know, by, by 0.62. So people often would say, well, temptation is the mirror Im, you know, image of, of confidence, if, if that's making sense, but it's not. But the term self-efficacy they, they were using for both temptation and confidence. So again, in motivational interviewing, um, we often ask the person, how um, how confident are you that you could change this? And we use scaling rulers and we say, if your confidence is at a five, you know, what would help you? I mean, why, why is it not a three or what would help you move it up a little bit higher? Um, in all of our studies, we've also done something very much like that with temptation. And in our, in, in our, I think probably eight of, I don't know, 80, 90%, 90%, 90%, temptation has been one of the strongest predictors of outcomes. So if we can, if a person's very tempted and in our treatment, we've done, we do individual treatment, we do group treatment. Uh, if our treatments were able to reduce that temptation and increase their confidence, they're much more success, able to be much more successful. Great. Thank you for addressing those questions. Dr. Hilton also had another question which uh, spoke to what you were talking about earlier, which were the processes of change. And it, it was really an observation on her part that perhaps the field, not your field specifically, your lab certainly, but maybe the broader awareness amongst clinicians who help people with change, um, you know, recall or maybe um, are still connected with the stages of change, but the processes of change have, have not sort of remained so much in the forefront of people's awareness and, and just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Uh, yeah, I think the processes are a little more, a little more complicated to understand or take a little bit more explanation. Um, I think clinicians can really resonate. In fact, you know, in, a, in our writings in our group treatment book, um, clinicians have it's like translated now into 10 different languages. So clinicians have embraced the whole idea of, you know, once they figure out these processes of how to help increase them clinically. Um, I think across just on a more general audience, the stages were so sort of intuitive and easy to, to sort of learn and think about. Um, I think that's probably why the stages have gained more popularity. Carlo um, has also written a great book. It's called Addiction and Change. And in that book, he calls, by the way, decisional balance and self-efficacy um, that, that the, the person was asking about. He calls those markers of change. Right. So that's how we can that's how we can look and see how the, how the person is changing. So, so yeah, I, I think, um, I think, you know, when people, so when my students, once we start talking about these processes, I see them start, they start paying attention and they start really trying to think about how do I use these with my clients and how much sense does this make? And when I, when I made a behavior change, did I go through these? And oftentimes it really, they really like the processes. So I think that, you know, just, just teaching them a little bit more frequently talking about them a little bit more, but it takes something like this. It takes, you know, sort of an hour of, time to describe those, whereas the stages people go, oh yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, so there's, I guess one of the things they think about is if, if we're doing a, a brief overview, it's it's just reminding people or reminding ourselves there are these two sets of processes and you can go into them in a bit more depth with more study. You mentioned your book, or I know that you have several books, but you mentioned the book that, 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 that talks about the processes. Can you just tell us the name of that for, for, for the listeners? Oh, thanks. Sure. It's called Group Treatment for Substance Abuse, um, a Stages of Change Therapy Manual. 
uh, second edition, and it's uh, by myself, Mary Martin Velasquez, Kathy Crouch, Nanette Stevens, and Carlo DiClemente are the authors on that. It's fantastic. Press. And we will put a, a link to that in, in the, the podcast blurb as well. Can I just also just go back briefly? You you mentioned Temptation, and I'm just I'm intrigued by how you how you explore Temptation. You were talking about the readiness ruler, and you mentioned Temptation, and I'm just wondering... What, what, what's the intervention there? What's, what's, what are you doing when you're exploring someone's temptation and what is it you're endeavoring to understand? Yeah, um, we've got some exercises in there where we say, um, you know, we'll, we'll give different, different situations. So in that say, again, I'll use alcohol as an example. Uh, what, in what areas are you most tempted to change? And so the trans theoretical model, and then someone named Helen Annis has done some really interesting work. And typically it's social situations or it's, you know, if I'm in pain or if I'm, you know, just so there, there are four or five different situations. So we have the person identify, you know, how tempted would you be say on a scale of one to five? And so they, they rate on each of those. And then how confident might you be that you could change this behavior? So that's, and then we, we have, we talk about that, the difference between how tempted, because sometimes people can be incredibly tempted, but very confident that they, they could make the change. Other times, you know, they're, they're tempted and not confident at all or vice versa. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. So, there's been so much that you have covered today, Mary, and I'm sure there's lots more we could explore, but, but I'm conscious of our time. And I'm just, um, if it's okay, what we normally do at this point is we ask our guests two questions. The first being, what else is happening in your life that may be capturing your attention that may be work-related, may not be work-related? Yeah. Um I think I, what what has captured my attention recently is I had some opportunities this summer to spend time with some really wonderful sort of giants in the field. And that is just because I've done this work and um, the the people that I've met, like you, Glenn, um, are, are just become friends. And we we get to know each other because that motivational interviewing is such a strong link. Uh, but I spent time with um, people like uh, Carlo Di Clemente, who had a birthday uh, this year and went up to Philadelphia to celebrate with him and his family. Uh, Linda and Mark Savell, who've just been feet giants in the field um, of, of substance use uh, and have written so many books, but have looked at harm reduction and, and moderation management. And the guy named John Higgins Biddle and John is really the first person who, uh, one of the first people who identified the screening brief intervention and referral to treatment, which is known as SBIRT, that has really taken the medical field by storm right now. Um, and just thinking about John and how his early work with a guy named Tom Baber and the WHO, um, just the way these things came about. Some of it was just serendipity. Some of it was just, gee, sitting around thinking and talking, just like you said about, you know, Bill Miller. Um, maybe maybe you've said that before. He, you know, Bill uh, he, he didn't know he was inventing something that was as wonderful as yeah. this. People just said, how do you do what you do? Mm. So, so to me, what, what's exciting to me is putting those pieces together and being with those people who have done that thinking. And it just happened to be that I had these experiences this summer. Nothing was even planned other than visits because we're friends, but putting those pieces together and that vantage point of, of putting it together in that way. And just last week I was at the motivational interviewing network of trainers conference uh, and talking with Bill uh, and other 
people from that, what we call minties. Um, and, and that those are just, that, that's the exciting piece that's happening in my life. Besides I have two wonderful grandkids and they're pretty darn exciting too. Oh. Well, yeah, you've certainly been blessed with many things and, and throughout your career. Uh, and, and, you know, it seems like here recently you've just had an opportunity to meet some of these really, um, these pioneers in, in, in these fields, maybe the kissing cousins that Bill was talking about. And, and the other question that we, we ask as we start wrapping up is if, uh, if people out there were interested in contacting you, would you be okay with that? And if so, how would people reach you? Sure. Um, absolutely. I, I would be more than happy uh, to do that. The best way probably to be in touch is um, take a look at our website. So our lab is called the Health Behavior Research and Training Institute, and it's at the University of Texas at Austin. So you could just Google that. Um, and we have a page there that that where we have a lot of our projects described and some rep, some uh, resources and um, other things. I can't say that it's as up to date as it will should be. Um, it may be a six months or so old, so we, we haven't updated it in a, in a little while, but we're working on that. Um, but yeah, so just Google that, um, and I can I, I can I'll give you guys um, also the the link to to that website. That's probably the easiest way, or just look me up. I'm you know there at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm in the Steve Hicks School of Social Work. And, and in the Health Behavior Research and Training Institute, which is part of that. That's cool. Fantastic. And, and on that, just to remind people how they can stay in touch with us, it's uh, on Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. Facebook is Talking to Change. And email for questions or suggestions or information on training, it's podcast at glennhines.com. So Mary, thank you so much for your time and uh, sharing your, your 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 journey. And as one of the pioneers, I think is really important to acknowledge is is that just how how many places along this journey that your footprints are alongside of these other giants. So we're honoured that you're you're here with us today, and we really appreciate your contributions to the science of change, but also to to us in our podcast. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Mary.